Welcome to Hear Her Sports, a podcast about exceptional female athletes and women in sports. There are a lot of us out there. Find us, see us, hear us. Before I get started, a quick reminder that our partner, Ally's Bar, is offering 50% off and free shipping to Hear Her Sports listeners. Use the promo code HERSPORTS at alliesbar.com. Head to hearhersports.com membership page for more information. They are gluten-free, non-GMO, kosher, and filled with recognizable ingredients. The sweet potato with pistachio cashew pumpkin seed energy bars are packed with 6 grams of protein. And now let's get started. Allison O'Hara is one of the original founders of True North Adventures, a kayak and stand-up paddleboard guide company in Homer, Alaska. This is the beginning of her 26th season. She's been doing it for a really long time. She guides around Kachemak Bay and Yukon Island. Allison is a real storyteller, so definitely hold on for an episode filled with orcas, Alaska, plane crashes, Nordic skiing, and women, and coaching. I met Allison while I was in Alaska for two months in an artist residency, and I started working out with the Homer Women's Nordic Team. It's a group of really exceptional, adventurous, and really terrific women who train from mid-October through spring, and I was lucky to be there during that time. And they welcomed me with open arms, and I had a blast, and even considered moving to Homer, Alaska permanently just to be able to train with those guys. We started out our conversation talking about what else but the weather. Here's Allison. And now we have snow, you know, last, this past winter, we actually had snow, which we hadn't had, I think, from before you were here, like for three years. So for the ski team, it was just a whole new world. It was, it was a blessing. And in fact, I was skiing up till a few days ago. No, that's great. That's yeah. Great. And like skiing and kayaking in the same day. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I was looking at your website, and there are a lot of pictures of kayaking through ice flows. Right, and on the paddle boards. That's our newest trip. You, you know, um, you hike up to a glacier lake, and then you, you paddle board through the icebergs up to the foot of the glacier. Wow. Which is, yeah, it's pretty awesome. And it makes for great photos, too. So l- let's start at the beginning. I want to find out uh, more about how you ended up in Alaska. Okay, so um, I went to college in Vermont at University of Vermont, and there were other kids there that had been to Homer. They camped on the Homer spit, so they were spit rats is what this, you know, these kids were called that worked at the fish canneries, and I just thought that sounded like an amazing thing to do, and I had never been west of Rochester, New York. And I was, I was supposed to be a debutante, but I, I ran away to Alaska and, <laughs> and then I camped on the Homer spit and, and I was a spit rat for three, three summers. And I kind of upgraded to working on, you know, commercial fishing boats and all that. But, but yeah, we, I mean, we were like the Lord of the flies out there, just a whole bunch of kids, you know, living on the spit and, We'd actually, we'd put illegal crab pots off of the dock and, you know, because a lot of us, did, we didn't have any money. Did you have a job? Yeah, we'd fi- we finally got a job at the fish cannery, but there was a wait because you had to wait, you know, for the fish to come back, the salmon run to start again. So there was a little bit of a lag time. Yeah, and we'd dumpster dive and set crab pots out. And, and then uh, it was just this whole culture, this whole spit rat culture. And then I'd go back to college the next year until I graduated, pretty much. And that was in the 80s, right? Yeah. So my first summer was 83. And, 
you know, Homer was, it was definitely a different place back then. It's gotten a lot more civilized over the years. Yeah, I mean, a lot of the businesses there are very new, so I can't imagine what it was like. Right. I know there was like a little, you know, one one good restaurant back then. And, and you know, now there's like a dozen of just, you know, top-notch restaurants and and then and then there was a lot more of an enclosed feel because we hadn't had the spruce bark beetle so that you know that killed a lot of the trees but it used to be kind of very nestled in the woods and there were all kinds of dirt roads and crazy characters called you know like dirty days and you know (laughs) and i'd come up with a bunch of girl uh, you know women girlfriends of mine that and uh we were camped on the homer spit and we were the vermont (laughs) of course yeah, we were called the Vermont Girls, and then there was like the California guys and all that. So that was, yeah, my humble beginnings were on the Homer Spit. How long were you working at the cannery? I did, I think I did three stints there. So I worked on the egg crew my first year, and then I and then I got upgraded to freezer crew later on, and and I worked the night shift too. So it'd be like midnight to 10 a.m. Then we'd go have a beer at 10 in the morning. Right. And then you had the whole day ahead of you. Right. <laughs> yeah. So we'd go to the Salty Dog at 10 a.m. And uh, yeah, it was just pretty hilarious um, existence. What was the pay then? Oh, oh, wow. So it was probably like, I think it was like six bucks an hour. And then you got time and a half. Six bucks an hour? Eight hours. Yeah. Wow. Mm-hmm. That's I incredible. Huh. I always have pictured those jobs as like incredibly high paying. Well, the only reason you made money was because you worked so much. Got it. Got it. You know, so, so I mean, you'd come out with like 80 hour weeks a lot of the time. I mean, we'd just be toast Wow. by the end of it. So I did that for a few years and then I commercial fished. I worked on halibut boats, you know, those big, huge flat fish. And there were hardly any women doing that at all. And I thought I was pretty cool out there with all the guys. And then I ended up on a um, on an all women's boat for um, oh, I bet that was for awesome. one opener. Yeah, and we and we landed the fish, and we were just on on top of the world um, when we were delivering. And everybody, you know, all these big guys are just like, whoa, those those gals actually caught some fish and. So that was pretty exciting, you know, and we did it comfortably. Like we brought really good food to eat and we actually took naps and it was really pleasant. So I actually liked that better. That's the origin of your guiding business. It sounds like. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And then, then I worked for fish and game for a couple of years remotely out across the inlet for, and I spent two summers out there doing, you know, salmon studies and, lake research out, you know, I mean, we'd float plane out there and then I wouldn't see anybody for three months. And then, and that got kind of lonely over there. So then that's after that, that's when I started the kayaking business. So I want to go back a a little bit. The, I, you know, I've been in Alaska for a month and I know how tough you guys are. So had you as a kid been tough and sporty or did you just arrive there and the, and Alaska turned you (laughs) Tough and sporty. <laughs> well, I thought I was tough and sporty, you know, on the East Coast, but I really got t- 
tough up here for sure. And I, I just have the mentality that I, I study. I actually studied women's studies in college, and and I, when I got up here, it's like I just wanted to, you know, live being a woman and doing whatever I wanted and whatever I thought I could do. I just didn't want to be, you know, held back. So that's why I kind of, you know, went off into commercial fishing and I did carpentry and I just kind of wanted to explore stuff that weren't, that wasn't normally like in women's fields, I guess. Did you do sports as a kid? Um, Yeah, I did. I was really athletic. I played soccer and field hockey, and I, I, our school didn't have a, a gals' tennis team, so I played on the guys' team. And then I, I skied a lot. and I actually went to a, a boarding school in Lake Placid, New York, and it was, it was for outdoorsy kids, which was great because we didn't have class from noon till 4, and you could do your sport which I think is brilliant to be able to get outdoorsy kids outdoors during the winter, during daylight hours. But I was a tomboy, you know, back on the East coast, but up here I really learned how to do stuff, you know, like run a chainsaw and and a snow machine that, you know, I resurrected this beater snow machine that I had gotten for free and, you know, just try And then I got a sled dog team and I don't know. I just, tried everything that's great that's cool and i know that you lived in uh very rugged conditions also i remember you telling me about that right so for 22 years i lived off the road so you had to hike or ski in or the last couple years i had a snow machine but i could never start it so i you know it's just (laughs) kind of easier to ski in than the frustration of i hate those pull starter things and then my daughter was born when we lived off the road. So she spent the first eight years of her life, you know, skiing in and out to our, to our cabin and we didn't have running water or anything like that. So yeah, that was definitely an interesting period, you know, and hauling the kid out on your back skiing and then by sled as she got older. And then when she was three, she was skiing on her own in and out pretty much. And I'd, I had a little tow rope and I'd tow her up the hill and then I'd cut her loose on top of the hill and give her a little shove. (laughs) (laughs) She's she's actually kind of a, she's a badass little skier now, but she had to be. I mean, that was her, that was how she had to get home. Right. Right. And do you miss that now that you're not living off the road or are you happy Um, to be in a house with running water and a shower? (laughs) Yeah, I would have to say. I don't miss it, I, but I like telling the story about it. And and while I was doing it, I loved it. But but I like um, I like being right in town. And and uh, my daughter and I live in this cute little house, and we have two bathrooms. So <laughs> we spend we do a lot of bathroom time now, and we're right on the bike path, so I can bike anywhere. So yeah, I and 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 there was so much time spent just getting in and out as we had more of a life in town like when Katya started going to school and so so it's just the commute was just getting kind of crazy. It was a lot easier when I worked seasonally and at the end of the, you know, the fall I would just go hunker down up up at the ranch and I didn't really need to, you know, commute. 
Right. Uh, so it worked well then, but but now no, we've we've totally got it made in town. Yeah, it, now. It, it takes a lot longer to haul water than turn on the tap. Exactly. Yeah, it's just like your your whole day is is based on survival. Yeah, ha- you know, get hauling water in and out and heating the wood stove, chopping the wood and, and all that. And then punching the trail in and out. Like if it snowed, you know, it would take you'd have to snowshoe the trail and then it was going to be skiable after that and you know, that all that stuff just took time. Let's go back again to the kayak business and uh Tell the story of how you started that. Like, why kayaking? Why, yeah, why guiding? Why kayaking? Right. Yeah. So, um, the, the whole eco tour thing really hadn't taken off yet. So, that was a bonus because when I started True North, we were kind of just slightly ahead of that curve. So, we were established. Um, but basically, I was getting, like I said earlier, kind of tired of living the whole, having my summers be remote out you know, across Cook Inlet working for Fish and Game. So I was trying to think of something to do in town. And I'd started to kayak with another friend of mine. And then I just thought it would be really cool to take people out kayaking and and guide them. You know, I was like, God, maybe people would pay me. Homer had mostly been a halibut fishing destination for tourists. But occasionally, you know, like, Families would come up and and the guys would want to fish and then the kids and and their moms would want to do something different or, you know, or whatever. The first year of business, we just kind of got a lot of, you know, the people that didn't want to fish. And we got a few. I started with a friend, my friend Kevin Bell, and we got some garage sale kayaks. I think our seed money was like, four thousand dollars or something we put in two thousand bucks each and we got a little base camp across the bay on an island and pretty much we stayed out there just all all summer and the water taxi would bring our clients over to us and there weren't cell phones phones then so we'd either you know hear the boat coming in at ten thirty or not you know Sometimes we'd still be in our tents. I mean, we were in our 20s. And, you know, I'd come out of my tent, like, pressing my teeth, like, oh, my God, they're here. (laughs) You know, so it was sort of, you know, we're these kids trying to start this business. And and we had, like, a, you know, case of ramen noodles and a box of wine. And we were just in seventh heaven over there. I think we had 50 clients. That's a lot for a first year. Yeah, we did pretty well. And there was a charter company on the spit that took us in and said, hey, well, you know, we can do your bookings for you. Although, although, like in the front of the office, there were all these, you know, young women that were selling the halibut trips. And if you wanted to do the kayak trip, they sent you to the little old lady in the back room (laughs) named, named Mary Peppa. And she was from Boston. She'd be like chain smoking back there. And somehow she sold 50 trips. I don't know how. She she was very kind of disorganized. And one time I went in there and she said, so Allison, some people came in here and they wanted to know are the, what the kayaks were made of. And I said, I, th- I think they're made of steel and wood. And I was like, oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's like, how did she book anybody? 
<laughs> and she and we'd call up and she and we'd be like, "How many people do we have for tomorrow, Mary?" And she'd say, "Well, I think you got now. You got ten for tomorrow. Now you got two. <laughs> no, oh, you got nothing for tomorrow." And <laughs> so those were our humble beginnings. We had one trip a day. It went from like ten until people. Sometimes we wouldn't get back till seven, and. You know, because that's how long we'd want to be out there. So then we kind of realized, you know, people don't want to be out here all day. And we'd take tons of food and we'd just be out there having a ball and people would just be crawling back to the office after that. So, you know, after some trial and error, we just kind of figured out what trip sort of works best for your average person and sort of fine-tuned it from there. Are your trips adventurous still, or are they much more tame? Well, we have all of the above now. So they start at a half-day trip. That's the shortest. And then for the day trips, you can do our ultimate tour, which is the longest, probably most adventurous. It's an awesome trip. You water taxi across the bay, and then you you do a point-to-point kayak trip through the artist community of Halibut Cove. And then you end up at, at a trailhead, and then you leave the kayaks and hike up to the glacier lake, and then back down, and then the water taxi picks you up. And then there's that, you know, that paddle boarding trip up there. That is That one's really adventurous. That's like you're, you're just out there. And then we do up to six-day guided trips, too, so kind of all of the above. Are your clients really... Um really in shape and athletic or is it sort of a wide range? Really wide range. Um, right now we have a battleship in here. There's a Navy the battleship. Wow. Yeah. And so we've had these, um, yeah, sailors come out. Oh, that's cool. Yesterday that's awesome. we had, yeah, two gal, um, Navy officers come out and, and they did the ultimate tour. Um, so you just never know. If people want to go out, you know, even if they have, you know, issues, I, you know, I really like to get people out there if they're game. Like um, one year I had a paraplegic come out and, you know, got him out there. He's an experienced kayaker from Canada. And yeah, so if they're willing to do it, I'm willing to give it a whirl. What's been your most rewarding trip or some memorable trips? Well, there's been some pretty awesome wildlife experiences, of course. Probably one time we saw a pot of orcas surface about half a mile away. And then the next thing you knew, they were right next to us and we were like getting pinned by them next to a rock cliff. And they were kind of surfacing right next to us. And we could see, you know, the water bubbling underneath us. And that was kind of, you know, exhilarating and terrifying. I mean, they surely knew you were there. They were kind of messing with you? Yeah, they were just, I think, just checking us out. And they, you know, surfaced for a couple minutes around us. And then they were gone. (laughs) And, and, you know, and then it's just like your hair standing on end. It's just like, oh, my God. It was like so awesome. But just completely terrifying and you know and of course for me it was like that and I always scream which never helps because then (laughs) 
you know, it's like, oh God, the guide's screaming. But it's just, it's just so overwhelmingly awesome. You know, every time the the whales I love, they're they're just really super fun to see, and 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 you can only see part of them, like the top part of them. Periodically, so you don't really know what they're doing below the surface. Like what? And one time we had a um, a super pod of orcas. I don't know if you know about that, but no, because they all they all live with their mothers, so they live in small pods. They're matriarchal, and so periodically they have to get together in super pods to diversify their gene pools. So somehow they communicate, you know, like acoustically, they get the word out to to the other pods in their areas and, and they decide where to meet annually. And it's almost to the day, which is just so magical. It's usually in early August. And so one year we had the super pod was in Kachemak Bay and it's usually for about 12 hours. They meet and then it's just like this big party. And so strewn out in between our base camp and then the Harbor were about a hundred orca whales. And um, so they, they mate and then they, they all go, you know, they essentially have a one night stand and then they go back to their mother's. And then whichever <laughs> whichever pod that the calf is born into, it stays in for its whole life with its mother. So even the the big gnarly alpha male, you know, goes back to his mother, and that's where he will stay for the rest of his life. Wow. So yeah, that oh god, it was just incredible. They were everywhere, like breaching and spy hopping that's when they're they just their noses just peek up out of the water and they kind of look around and then they were tail lobbing that's when they smack their tails against the water and every time another pod would come into the bay they'd get excited all over again and of course you know going back and forth in the water taxi you'd have to we would stop you know and because it was hard to keep on schedule you know you just had to stop cut the engine and just let the whales kind of do your their thing around you so of course we kept getting later and later and later for our pickups but (laughs) you know people kind of understood that yeah what a bonus to so what if you're late exactly yeah and it was it was like there was some soundtrack playing underneath the water you know like the peanuts theme song or something you know the whales were just so perky and excited. So, yeah, that was a neat experience for sure. You know, and then, of course, there's been the crazy weather days where you get kind of weathered in somewhere. Um, Like, I got weathered in on an overnight trip. There were 12-foot seas, so we had to hunker down on this little beach. And I was with a family, but, but the boat was like, I don't know, it was probably six hours late. And I was with a, a family with adult children, and then one of them had their, there was a, the son and his wife, and they actually went to take a nap while we were waiting for the boat. And then I got a card um, a few months later saying that 
she got pregnant waiting for the boat, so that was kind of cool. <laughs> That's not a nap. <laughs> <And then> they, <laughs> I know, they call that a nap. Yeah, it's like a nap. Close. And um, and they actually uh, the middle name of the of the boy is kayak. Have you had any really scary experiences? I mean, like truly scary, safety scary type experiences. Probably the scariest one was we were trying to. Um, do fly-in trips on the other side of the mountains. So in the Gulf of Alaska, so you'd take a float plane and we were doing a reconnaissance trip, Kevin and I. We did an eight-day trip over there in the Kenai Fjords. And when we were coming back, the weather picked up like really badly. It was like 50-knot winds probably and the plane was supposed to pick us up. And and they were late and the later it got like the worse the weather got and like it the wind was just blowing or these big heavy bags of you know that had our collapsible kayak in it and and then we kind of threw in the hat we were like oh he's probably not coming and we actually did not want him to come because it was so rough and just so gnarly and then right as we started to set up camp all of a sudden we saw this light bobbing around we're like oh no it's the plane and so we he he landed and then the pilot was like okay get all your stuff in here like super fast we're just like throwing all our stuff in and there were these huge gusts of wind I was just like oh god I really don't want to go up in this plane and then right as we started taking off the pilot starts like swearing up a storm and he had no control because the bags had gotten stuck in the on one of the controls so he couldn't actually get the plane up and it was just it was almost getting slammed into the water and finally we moved a bag and he got the controls back and then we got aloft out of there and then the whole way back it was just we just got pummeled up there in this little teeny plane but then we landed and just kind of sat there. It took us a while to even get out of the plane. We were just so shaken up. But that was a close call. It was a really close call. That was one thing I noticed when I was in Alaska, just how dependent everyone is on planes. And Right. You know, you sort of want a plane, but not want to fly the plane. Exactly. I know. And I, you know, stuff can go wrong on boats, but at least you're on something kind of firm. You know, like you can't like drop out of, out of the air, but we, speaking right. of planes, like we also had a, um, a plane crash. There was a plane crash on Yukon Island about 12 years ago, right next to our base camp. I was on the beach with a group and I was doing the kayak orientation and we heard this airplane cut out a little, you know, like a little, um, super cubby kind of airplane. It was actually a Cessna 206 and, um, and so I stopped the orientation and we all ran around the other side of a rock and this plane was coming in, obviously trying to make an emergency landing and it just quit and it nosedived right onto the beach. And so all, all my little clients, we were all in spray skirts and we had to rescue four people out of this commercial plane coming from Seldovia over to Homer. That was probably my most hair-raising 
experience out there was rescuing these people. Wow. Yeah. Back to the business a little bit. How many how many employees now do you have? About 15. Whoa, that's a lot. Are they all guides or do you have other support people? So there's guides and then there's office couple office people. No more Mary, whatever. <laughs> oh, yeah, no, no more Mary Pepper. Oh my God. No, I got. Um, I have an amazing office person named Melanie Champagne. And she knows that the kayaks and, um, aren't made of ke- steel and wood. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, we've come a long way from my humble beginnings. Yeah, Melanie is just. She keeps everything together. She's the glue, for sure, of the business. Because I, I'm not that good with detail stuff. So, and then there's some deckhands. There are kids. I like to hire kids and got to get my daughter's friends deckhand on the boat. So there's two water taxis, a couple boat drivers, deckhands, a uh, couple office people. And then um, there's about eight guides that do, you know, paddleboarding and kayaking. And are you still guiding as well? Yeah, it's kind of what I do best is the guiding part for sure. And I like I love the paddleboarding trips, and so that it's nice for me to do something fresh because this is my 26th year guiding. But I still like going out, you know, kayaking around Yukon. I've probably been around that island, you know, a few thousand times. It's my office. I, you know, I love it. It's a beautiful place to be. What do you like about guiding and why do you think you're good at that? Well, I love making the, the area come alive. I love telling stories about, you know, like the old homesteaders on the island. Or we have this amazing archaeologist, a female archaeologist that was here in 1929 named Frederica de Laguna. And I love talking about her and her whole story and and then all the inner tidal life, you know, the big sunflower sea stars and sea anemones and, you know, just sharing that, all that rich information. And then, you know, hopefully getting people interested in, you know, protecting our bay or, you know, other other really important, amazing areas in nature. But I'd say that's why I like I like to do it. I just like to, you know, teach people about our, you know, that that little island has so much to tell about it. Even though I mean it's beautiful just looking at it, but but I think the stories are just really what makes it an amazing place to be and learn about. Well, you're certainly a good storyteller. Oh, thanks. <laughs> <laughs> I got it from my dad. That's good. Have you had any issues being a, a female guide or run into sexism? Occasionally. Um, I, I used to have this, a small water taxi. It was super cute called the Harlequin. And it was locally made here in town. And people would look at me, you know, I'm kind of small. And they'd look at the boat and they'd be like, really? You want me to go across the Alaskan ocean in that little boat? Barbie boat with you and you know I kind of had that a couple times and (laughs) but because I've been doing it so long I think I I come off as really confident 
but it, you know, it, it took a while to get to that place. And honestly, it was only really a couple times that happened. And then I straightened them out pretty quick. Well, that's good. <laughs> I, I know. And I, yeah, I, I honestly think it was just because I felt really solid, you know, most of the time. And, right. um, and, and if I didn't, I learned early how to hide it. You know, like when things got really bad, like the sunglasses come down over the eyes to, you know, show, hide the terror. And, I, and I'm pretty chill, you know, like grace under pressure externally. I think, even though internally it's like, um, you know, I'm scared to death, but I think I present it, you know, things in a calm way. Well, you must, you must have some, you know, sort of inner sense of confidence. I mean, you started this business quite, when you were quite young. Right. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah. And so over the years, it's, I think my, one of my strong points is just dealing with chaotic stuff. You know, because it's sometimes it it just can get kind of nuts out there. It's just there's so many logistics, and then the weather and the tides and the people and the guides and the, you know, and just. But that's where I thrive. I think is just in kind of more of a chaotic environment. That's why I'm not that good in the office where it's like I have to be precise and like my numbers have to align. And I'm not so good at that. It, it's a good job for me. Yeah. You also do a bunch of other stuff. You ski, and I know you're involved with, with coaching high school, right? Is that right? Right. Yeah, I've coached kids, like, in the junior Nordic ski program, and then I coached the middle school, and now I'm the high school ski coach. So I've pretty much followed my daughter. Now she's a sophomore in high school, so I just kind of follow her up <laughs> through. <laughs> So, so I can kind of, you know, keep an eye on her, yep. but, uh, she likes it too. Um, but I, yeah. And then I coach the Homer women's Nordic ski team too. Tell a little, a little bit about the Homer women's Nordic. Sure. So Megan Carraza started that probably, gosh, probably like eight or nine years ago. And she's an amazing force. She, uh, passed the organization on to four, four members of which I'm one of them. And so we kind of took over last year. I don't know if you knew that, Yeah. but it, yeah, it's an amazing group of people. I mean, I, I honestly, I like, I didn't know how to ski. I had never raced until I started Homer women's Nordic with Megan. And I mean, I, I'd um, just regular backcountry skied kind of what I call tootling, but, over the years, over the last nine years, I've really learned how to, you know, skate ski and then classic ski race and get really in, involved in teaching technique and race strategy plans. And, you know, I've done stuff in the last nine years that I never, ever would have thought I would have done, you know, like racing 40K skate ski races and, you know, and coaching a high school ski team and, and, you know, I owe a lot of that to Megan Carraza just really having faith in me, you know, and getting me out there. Like my first year of Homer Women's Nordic, I wanted to do the 25K tour of Anchorage and Megan refused. She was like, no, you have enough training to do that 40K and you get out there and do it. And and I'm so glad I did. So 
She's oh, I thought been, you were going to say that she didn't want you to do 25K because it was too much. But, but the, no, she wanted you to do 40K. <laughs> <laughs> yes. She was not having me do the 25K. It was not an option. I love it. So I know. And she was just, and I love her whole idea of that we give back to the community. That was a very important thing because that that group, it only costs $100 a year and you get, you know, six, seven months of coaching, you know, top-notch coaching. And But in exchange for that, she really likes people to go out and, you know, and teach other people and spread the, the ski love. She is an amazing, amazing coach. I mean, I've had a, a few coaches and she really is one of the best, if not the best. It's just, it's extraordinary how, how, just how well she explains it and how well she knows it from an internal sense, but also how well she's kept that group together. Yeah. Yeah. And she, she adds really like interesting slants to stuff. Like for instance, she always tries to have some sort of analogy for the day. Like when we were doing polling, like you want to have your, arms bent when you start double pulling and then you want to lengthen them them out in the back so she would compare that to like a mullet hairdo <laughs> so short in the front <laughs> long in the back and it's like you never forget you that. can't forget it you know i get out there i know i'm like double pulling i'm like mullet right 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 short in the front long in the back here i go so you know she's very creative so i've tried to do that when i teach as you know, just really get that creative element, which has been really important with the high school ski team and with kids, because you can just make it, you know, that much more fun and interesting. And then they never know what's going to be coming at them the next day, you know, so they show up, they're like, now what's she going to make us do? Are you also really aware of intervals and, and an endurance day and a sprint day and, and a rest day? You know, do you have a huge plan for the whole season and for each week and that kind of stuff? Yeah, totally. Yeah. So yeah, it's pretty much that formula, especially in the beginning of the season before we get into kind of back to back races. So just, you know, building everybody's stamina up and yeah, yeah, you want to do the endurance and then the speed intervals and hill intervals, like you said, is definitely key. And then, um, and then when we start racing, it gets a little easy. We don't, push them quite as much and we try to make it fun. And then we work a lot on race strategies and stuff. Like my big thing this year with the kids was learning how to draft, Oh, you know, which you probably do biking. Yeah. But you know, like once you get to a certain speed, I mean, drafting is huge. So really working on a lot of that strategy, that mental stuff. And I think that's been sort of fun for the kids because it's sort of intriguing and they really get to think about, you know, different ways of, of improving their race times and stuff. Well, it's interesting with the, with the kids because, like, for instance, this year I was chasing them all around, you know, and they're, and they're really fit. I mean, like. And they're young. So one of the kids. And they're young. And, uh, yeah, one of our skiers just broke, I think it was like a five-minute, 42nd mile. You know, I mean, these guys wow. are, are strong and fast and fit. So when I'm training with them, you know, and I'm 53, it's like, you know, I feel like I'm just like a, a slug out there. 
And then I get into racing with my peers and it's like, well, actually, you know, I'm pretty darn fast once I get around, you know, like people in my age group. So I end up kind of training with them and then inadvertently and when I get to do my own races, I'm actually, I, I do really well. So it's sort of, I do both at the same time. That's nice. Yeah. So I, I had two really good races this past year, better than ever in my whole life. So basically it ain't over till it's over as far as I'm concerned. I, you know, I just feel really great that I'm, I'm getting better in my fifties instead of, you know, getting slower. So I'm really excited about that. I just feel really strong and, and good and, yeah, I got third in my age group in the tour of Anchorage. Oh wow, that's that's a big event. Yeah, and then twenty um, second overall out of like two hundred and fifty people, and then I got fourth in the Homer Marathon here. Running marathon? Did you run? No, it's the ski marathon. I'm a terrible runner. I'm really slow, so <laughs> I think it's just I, if I add my arms, then I'm, you know, because of skiing, you can use your arms, and then. Then I'm oh, that's right, of because of all that kayaking. All the kayaking. <laughs> yeah, it's like you add my legs and it slows me down. <laughs> that's funny. Tell me more about the Homer Women's Nordic and what you guys are doing in the summer, if anything. I can't remember if anything happens during the summer. Yeah, usually we try to have, uh, you have X amount of hours that you train in the summer. So, so And then you get like a prize at the end. Of it. And then a lot of us try to do the um, the Lost Lake Run. It's a 16-mile trail run, which is awesome in Seward. It's, it's, it goes up and over a mountain. So a lot of people train for that during the summer. And then, and then the training starts in earnest in, like, October 1st. And that's dry land stuff. So it's like roller skiing and then, and then hill intervals. And we'll do beach runs. And, then we, and we do um, beach plyometrics. You might have done that. Did you ever do that on no. the beach? So we go down to the low tide and then you just do plyometrics. So it's kind of like working on fast twitch muscles and we do like ski jumps and, I'll, and, and then we'll grab rocks and do like rocks off the beach and do, you know, tricep lifts and blah, blah, blah. And we'll do plank positions. So we love to do that, get out on the beach. So we try to shake it up with a dry land training. And then as soon as the snow flies, we're out on our rock skis. So even if, you know, it might be like 50% snow, 50% grass, we're out there, you know, as soon as we can. I never knew what rock skis were until I was <laughs> with you guys. <laughs> I was like, what the hell is a rock ski? That's a rock ski. Um, <laughs> so yeah, as soon as we can, we're, we're out on the snow. And then basically we train to peak for the, for the tour of Anchorage is what most people are peaking for. And that's in, that's usually the first week in March up in Anchorage. And then we all go up together, which is one of the things I just love about Women's Nordic is we get a big house and people bring their kids. You bring your, your families for sure. And so sometimes people do, you know, three races in a row and you just get, have this, like your little ski family and one gal has four little kids and I just love that time, you know, being with those little kids. And so it's, it's just a real community and 
all the women really support each other. Like if, if someone has a baby or they're sick, it's like a meal train set up. And so we make sure they're fed for the next three weeks or it, it's just, a offers a lot of emotional support and camaraderie. It's not just skiing. I was impressed with sort of the value of having an all women's training group. And it was particularly exciting because everybody was, you know, so enthusiastic and so encouraging and, you know, like really in a, in a real way wanted every single person, regardless of their ability level to succeed and do well and show up the next day. I think that's really unique. Yeah. And I think it's, um, you know, sometimes it comes up like, because the I think the men and Homer are really jealous because there's not like a, a Homer men's Nordic. And so it comes up sometimes, you know, like having it co-ed and we're talking about maybe having one co-ed day, like a Saturday once a week, but, but none of us want to lose that just having it be all women's because I, th- I think the relationships are going to develop to be a lot closer and, you know, we can just kind of talk about anything and there's not that sort of, you know, competition with, you, you know, having men there and just with Hill and rolls or something where, you know, and then they're going to all be in the front. And I think the whole dynamic would, would for sure change, you know, and sometimes I like to set up like a little ski jump or something for, women to do. And I think it's a lot less intimidating if you're there and you can just feel like you can fall down and you don't have to, you know, keep up with any, any guys out there. So I think we're going to for sure just keep the integrity of the women's group for the most part. I like it. I'm all for it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and is, is your high school team? It's men and women though, right? Yeah. It's, uh, and there's about 22 kids on the team and the the girls team is actually really really strong and they're young so I think by the time they're seniors they're going to really be pretty formidable out there I'm really looking forward to see what they come up with and then the the guys team is is pretty young too and they're all just really nice kids and they've you know I've known a lot of them for you know since they were in junior nordic and then and then quite a few of them work for me in the summer, which is really neat. So we just have a a really strong relationship with them. But we try to do, you know, like trail runs all all summer long. And I I like to keep events for for the high school kids on the ski team just to keep in shape and see each other and, and do fun stuff. And do any of them or have any of them gone on to, you know, national racing or international racing? We had one kid that was tried out for the Junior Olympics, but he didn't make it. But he's only a sophomore, so you know, in a in a couple of years, maybe he'll have a better chance. But you know, it it's so competitive up here. Oh, I'm sure it's just nuts, you know. And we have the ATU, Alaska Pacific University, that just pumps out some world class skiers out of there. You know, with Keegan Randall and and then Holly Brooks, she's an Olympian as well. She taught there at APU. So that's like a a world-class, you know, ski institution there. Yeah, we'll see. 
We'll see what happens. It's, you know, and it's a lot of the psychological stuff. Like some of the kids, they get really frustrated. Like he didn't make it into, you know, jails this year. And so I've been really working with him on just building his confidence and, and all that. But we'll see what happens. Well, I, don't, I could talk to you all day, I think, but it's it's been almost an hour. So, <laughs> holy cow! <laughs> well, it was it was a real treat to talk to you again and hear your voice and hear more about Alaska. Thank you. Sure, sure, yeah. I'm not sure what it's all about, but but I'm game. <laughs> Thanks for listening. All episodes are available on iTunes, Stitcher, and from HearHerSports.com listen page. If you like this episode, I'd really appreciate it if you would go to iTunes and leave me a review. Also, every other week I'm sending out a short email filled with related articles, links to videos and highlights from the episode, and some other good stuff. Subscribe at hearhersports.com. Order Allie's Bar using the code HERSPORTS to get 50% off and free shipping. Allie's Bars are for, during, and after workouts, or for a quick meal when you're short on time. You can find me on social media at hearhersports.com Hi, listeners. We wanted to take a moment to tell you about another podcast from Evergreen Podcasts and Sound Talent Media called Pit Lane Parlay. Pit Lane Parlay is the go-to podcast for IndyCar and motorsports-related news. Each episode, we discuss things like our favorite drivers, news clips from the last week, and generally giving each other a hard time about predictions we've made in the past and or life stories that have come up recently. We really have a lot of fun with it and really enjoy each other's company, and we hope you can come join us too. Join Pit Lane Parlay by following us on your favorite podcast today.